Hey, everybody. Welcome to Friday the 13th, the series. I'm your producer, Robert. And I'm your host, Hill Street. And after a complete, spoiler-filled recap of the episode, we are going to discuss the show you either just learned existed or always wondered how it existed. We promise the answers will be few and far between, because we're just here to have some goofity fun exploring a show that, despite or possibly even because of its faults, isn't good and isn't so bad it's good, but is still somehow oddly charming. Let's dive in, shall we? We're going to try something new for this episode. We're going to play around with format a little bit, see what works best. As of the time of writing the script, uh, I had seen the first three or four episodes, and as of this recording, I've seen the first five. Hill Street, on the other hand, hasn't actually seen this episode, and she is only seeing the script now for the very first time. So this should be interesting and exciting. Let's see how it goes. Hill Street, when you're ready, take it away. Episode three. Cupid's quiver. Oh boy. Okay. Be afraid. Be very afraid. This episode is going to tackle a love potion plot, so may God have mercy on our souls. Yep, I can believe that, considering so far with romance, it's basically been based on cousins. But we actually begin on a positive note. Instead of introducing a dive bar with a boring old establishing shot, we get a cool, low angle. I'll take a few points off because it isn't tilted enough to be the Dutch angle they were almost assuredly going for, but I'll add those points back and more for having a drunk stagger out and collapse directly in front of the camera. It's entirely unnecessary, but as Kubrick would say, is it interesting? The answer is yes. Inside, the camera drifts lang- languidly. Yes. Inside, the camera drifts languidly across people dancing upbeat to a slow tempo song and lands on our first creep of the episode. Let's just call him Creeper One, who actually spits in his hand to smooth his hair while staring at a girl who's clearly with someone. This scene will play out the way you're expecting, but not the way you're expecting. Yes, he goes over and gets shot down, but then he returns to the bar on which he previously set a burlap sack containing something that's roughly the size of a table lamp. Removing the sack, we discover a roughly three foot tall bronze Cupid statue. Its presence here is insane. In a cool, creepy bit of stop motion, Cupid comes to life and fires an arrow. No, sorry, that would make sense. Fires a 60s Star Trek laser beam at the girl, who promptly ditches her partner for Creeper 1. That's funny. Are you starting to regret the fact you haven't seen this yet? Absolutely, this sounds like the best one yet. Oh, you're gonna love this episode. (laughs) They head to a honeymoon suite. Oh my god, that's so extreme. Immediately, that's what it goes to? That's insane. They head to a honeymoon suite, so there's an excuse for the production design to mock up a pink heart headboard like the kind no hotel actually has, and the director clearly wants to put their stamp on this episode because this time we're treated to a bird's eye shot looking down on the room that not only pans with the couple, but booms down slightly. There's real effort on display here. That's funny, we're already hearing about two really interesting angles. Was this directed by someone differently? Were the first two directed by the same person? I actually don't know the answer to that. Those are all excellent questions that I had meant to research and did not get to before we recorded this. But before this episode is done, I'm absolutely going to research that and answer that very question. You can just insert your answer and pretend you answered it. And I'll, I'll just currently record, oh, interesting, or oh, all the same person, okay. They just are stepping up. I'll just record like you just said it. Just kidding. It's the same way that I just record you laughing one time and put it after all of my jokes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
They're like, wow, her laugh is so consistent. Then we get a great shot that again booms down to reveal the statue in the foreground with the actors on the bed in the background. Good on them for staging in depth and the fact the statue turns its head to watch them in not one, but two shots shows they're putting in money and effort they didn't have to. And the flickering light from the neon sign outside adds a tense element. Hey, things are really looking up for our plucky little show. Yeah, this one sounds good. Basking in the afterglow, she again professes her love for him and he strangles her. Wait, what? Then a group of guys bust in to save her. Stop. Hold on. What is happening? They're undercover police, right? I guess. They're not wearing uniforms, they don't have badges or guns, nor do they even announce they're cops or that they're making an arrest. Also, she didn't scream and barely made any noise. Double also, two of them are just chilling while the other three attempt to be big damn heroes but feel epically that they all end up sliding off the far side of the bed. I cannot imagine how angry this actress was at her scene partner's commitment to hanging on to her by the larynx. Seriously, we cut away from the scene without knowing for sure who any of these new men are or whether or not the woman is dead. All we know is that one of them in a pork... pork pie hat? All we know is that one of them in a pork pie hat seems to be interested in the Cupid statue. This cannot be happening. I'm gonna lose my mind. Well, we get closure on the first question when our intrepid Troika, Mickey, Jack, and Ryan the Lion learn about the arrest of Creeper One, aka the honeymoon sweet killer. But it would be kind of cool to know if that girl survived or not. Turns out Creeper One was something of a serial killer with a specific MO that he only enjoyed killing after statue-induced lovemaking, but he wasn't the original purchaser of the statue. The newspaper archives inform the group another serial killer originally purchased it, so the statue must go for two birds with one stone, both causing the owner to become a killer and the victims to fall in love. Or something. I'm now a... Nihilist? Nihilist. I'm now a nihilist and believe in nothing. So I'm going to go ahead and chime in and say that's a twofer for us, Hill Street, because in this episode, the haunted item didn't just fall into the hands of a psychopath. It fell into the hands of at least two psychopaths. I mean, we called that. Crystal ball. We said that it was they were going to continue on this path of the objects going to bad people. And they're not only doing that, they're doing that with oomph now, with gusto. That's right. Crystal ball episode one. It was more, honestly, it was your prediction because you hadn't uh, seen ahead. And yep. again, this is the episode that's going to show that someone can get a hold of an object and not necessarily instantly start using it to kill people. But uh, on the flip side of that, maybe, maybe to offset that fact, it's fallen into the hands of not one, but two evil people, surely by coincidence. <laughs> Back at the hotel, we get another high angle shot. Cool. Two's probably pushing it, but I get it. We took the time to set up one high angle shot. We're getting multiple high angle shots. <laughs> Fair. We also learn one of the men who burst in is apparently the owner. Ryan the lion immediately blows his and Mickey's cover story and the side eye Mickey flashes him is fantastic. He attempts to recover, but honestly, I, I don't think the owner cares one way or the other. He says he noticed the statue because it was too tacky even for a motel, as if he doesn't know what does and doesn't belong in the rooms. I don't know, maybe he's not the owner. He's just a guy in a business suit changing light bulbs, so a well-dressed handyman who also let the cops in? But his loose tie and the actor's world-weary performance makes him seem like a detective who's seen one too many crime scenes, so I don't know and I don't, I don't care anymore. Okay, I'm gonna do this in real time. No editing. Let's peek behind the curtain and see how the sausage is made. 
With great effort, several replays of the scene's dialogue, and some rewinding to earlier moments of the episode, I finally understand what happened in this hotel room. The sign outside the bar didn't say bar, it said hotel. I knew that, but the bar didn't look like any hotel bar, and the girl asked if there was any chance they could find a hotel room around here, which isn't how one phrases that question if one is in a hotel. So we were meant to understand this whole crime is happening in a single building. But it gets better. Those weren't undercover cops after all. They were, wait for it, fraternity brothers. In fact, three of the four brothers are the same three we first saw when we cut into the bar, but we only knew they were fraternity brothers because one of them announces their Greek letters as a toast, for some reason. They might be wearing shirts with the letters, but not even Rick Deckard could enhance this footage enough to be sure. Just put them in letter sweaters! And in the dark, from a low angle at a distance, Pork Pie's hat almost just reads as an extension of his hair until we see him later in the room. Also, keep in mind, every college person we meet in this episode is roughly 30 years old. So in the clear light of day, this almost makes sense on paper, but the execution just isn't up to the task. Also, it totally doesn't make sense on paper because the owner relates that he couldn't get in after hearing a noise he absolutely did not hear because the door was double locked. He probably means latched. So a bunch of drunk fraternity guys down in a noisy bar instantly, and I do mean instantly, raced upstairs and broke down the door because we all know a frat bro's raison raison d'être. <laughs> what is it? That's beautiful. I believe it's pronounced, and I will be corrected by the world, but I believe it's raison d'être. Raison d'être. Basically, reason to be, reason for being. Okay. Because we all know a frat boat... Because we all know a frat bro's raison d'etre is to prevent assault. It's airtight. Then again, Canada, so maybe. Ugh, this hotel's slash bars is pedo alley all over again. It's a vortex of madness I've stared into for far too long. Okay, I have Let's to- maybe just do one more- Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, dang it. Were you cutting in live there? I was, yeah. Okay, um, hold that thought. Just go ahead and cut in again with then again Canada, so Oh, maybe, yeah, okay. Maybe that I should sense. have put a question mark to make it a little bit more of a question. But you, you, you get what I'm trying to convey there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it now. Then again, Canada, so maybe? Ugh, this hotel slash bar is pedo alley all over again. It's a vortex of madness I've stared into for far too long. Yeah, I have to see this now. I'm absolutely perplexed by these these uh, fraternity brothers breaking it. It just, it like, I don't know how they wrote that and didn't think that that didn't make sense for so many reasons that you've listed. Not only the fraternity brother thing, which is bizarre enough on its own, but the fact that how would they have known something was wrong? It's just so freaking weird. I know you're reading my account, so of course it's biased, but I swear it was humbling to have to admit how long it took me and how difficult it was to understand what's going on, but I had a little vindication in that I showed the episode to uh, my brother and his wife and uh, his wife's brother, and yes, they were all equally lost as to what was happening. That's so strange. I just can't believe, I'm like, is there no editing on this shit? Now you know how our listeners feel when they hear this and have not seen the episodes. Yeah, yeah, that is absolutely bizarre. After a facial expression that's meant to convey realization, but looks like someone's suffering an unrelated stroke while staring into the Ark of the Covenant, the owner reveals one of these fraternal do-gooders stole the world's ugliest statue of Cupid because their house logo, not a real thing by the way, is a heart with an arrow through it, which, no, it just isn't. That's funny because you're a fraternity brother, or, or you were in a fraternity, so you would know. Yep, I have some insight into this one, and much like that motorcycle in episode one, I love to discuss. That's funny. Hold on, I'm taking my socks off. <laughs> my feet are hot! <laughs> oh, that's staying in. 
You know, our listenership just quadrupled when you announced that. I'm just taking my socks off because my feet are so hot. Skipping some padding, hey, uh, did, we meet I'm frequent- just going to check real quick, um, just basically out of an abundance of caution. Uh, you're still speeding, yes? Yes. In, any foot-related, sock-related asides? Keep them coming. <laughs> Keep them coming. When you, seriously, when you were like, I'm just going to check real quick, I, I was like, is he going to ask me a more, another question about my foot? <laughs> <laughs> it's not for me. It's for the listeners. <laughs> Skipping some padding, we meet Creeper 2, Eddie. The actor playing Eddie swings for the fences, portraying him like a junkie in need of a fix. But it's interesting and it works. That said, I don't know what this actor did to piss off the prop department, but they're clearly playing a joke on him, having him wear an obscenely ostentatious pocket protector when he shouldn't have any because he's not a nerd archetype, he's a creep. This prank had an unexpected casualty because both he and Lori, the girl he's creeping on, are completely upstaged by this incongruous pocket protector. To quote James Rolfe, what were they thinking? Play that what were they thinking as big as you possibly can. If you can, if you can put the energy without a ton of volume. I know everyone, every actor hates that request, but... What were they thinking? The actress portraying Lori deserves kudos as well, hiding her concern so as to not make things worse, until Eddie escalates anyway and she has no choice but to confront and even threaten him, knowing full well almost nothing she can do will actually ensure her safety. Throw in some POV close-ups and low angles to add both variety and tension, combined with some of the better lighting on this series, exterior no less, and the show is getting back on track. The sudden arrival of Mickey and Ryan may be posing as lost college students, although unlikely and insanely coincidental, actually makes them feel like the heroes who've come to save the day. I feel good about this. But even though Eddie tells them he's a member of the fraternity they want to go to, even though he offers them a ride, they reject him in favor of walking there with Lori and don't ask Eddie any follow-up questions. And no, I don't think they realize he's a creep or that they just saved a co-ed. In a fraternity house decorated for what could only be a Valentine's Day party, we learn Eddie isn't a member, but a hired cleaner and maybe handyman. It adds a class conflict element that has nothing to do with anything else and seems needlessly complicated. Just have pork pie fall under its spell and start using it. But no, Eddie has to be caught contemplating stealing it and have pork pie explain that he can't figure out how it, quote, helps you with chicks. Eddie understandably asks if that's what it's supposed to do, which pork pie is heard to retort, it's a cupid, stupid. This might just seem like harmless, bad, make that terrible writing, but it actually sheds some light on a deeper problem of the show. This exchange is the first solid foothold we get on the rules for these haunted objects that have bothered me since we met Mary in episode one, and the implication is that this is a 100% coincidence-powered show. Down in the engine room, they're just heaving shovelfuls of coincidence into the fire. Full speed ahead, yeehaw! Every person who has had possession of these evil curios so far might have been influenced by them to become evil. It didn't seem likely, and it certainly wasn't conveyed that way, but it was possible. But in this diet of fraternal higher education, we've now met someone who might have been influenced to steal the curio, but isn't mesmerized by it or even using it. So for these objects to work and this show to have a plot, they're somehow all ending up in the hands of natural-born killers, especially our dear, sweet, irrepressible Mary. Anyway, Mickey and Ryan show up at the fraternity house and, in a strange bit of meta-coincidence, Ryan confirmed something I was thinking earlier, then decided not to write. I had considered pointing out that Pork Pie stole the Cupid statue from a crime scene, but decided that although the phrase crime scene was strictly correct as assault was taking place, that most people think of murder when they hear crime scene, and we assume the woman survived, so use of the term might be confusing. But just to throw it in my face, Brian calls the hotel incident a crime scene, so he and Mickey are going to pretend to be cops again, despite having no uniforms or police identification. Again. 
They're stopped immediately, caught in their lie just as quickly, and leave. Our heroes, everyone. Outside, they encounter Eddie again and ask him if he's seen the statue around the house, as if they don't recognize him from about five minutes earlier, and vice versa. This bit of filler breaks the reality of the show while accomplishing nothing except possibly suggesting to Eddie that there really is something special about the statue. As they walk off, two strange things happen almost simultaneously, and I don't know what to make of either. As a way to hint to Mickey they're going to the fraternity's party that night, Ryan the Lion jokes about choosing one of the fraternity brothers for himself and suggesting Eddie for Mickey while putting his arm around Mickey's shoulder. First, given the era it was made, I'm surprised the show would have a character even joke about being attracted to someone of the same sex, especially with such a dry delivery. Of course, they probably had him put his arm around Mickey as a counterpoint to that very thought. Sure, it could be coincidence, but right from the jump, Ryan the Lion has really been boxed in by this episode, which is all about creepers. Probably the reason why he doesn't creep on Mickey this episode. That and, say it with me, she's his cousin. So she glances at the arm around her shoulder, but doesn't brush it away. Maybe he finally apologized off screen. Despite the production department's rocky start regarding that hotel, and equally poor follow-up with the fraternity's party's decorations, they course correct big time with the basement boiler room where Eddie lives. I'm sorry, there really shouldn't be that hyphen after mutilates. It's the photograph. Uh, well, no, I, oh, I, I did put that intentionally, but the line break might make it weird to read. Room where Eddie lives slash mutilates photographs of women. Where Eddie lives slash mutilates photographs of women. Honestly, I would watch a sitcom with him and a college-age John Doe from Seven as roommates. Just two young psychopaths getting their start, sharing a boiler room to save money. Commercial break! Some shows have a monster of the week. This series has a curio of the week. And so do we. Believe me, no one paid us for the following endorsements. And, once they hear the show, it's more likely they'll pay us to retract them. We just want to share some cool things with you while simultaneously using our platform to give a little free promotion to those without a massive advertising budget. So Hill Street, what is your Curio of the Week? My Curio of the Week is a jewelry store that I'm obsessed with. Um, I order everything online. It's called Love. E-T-A-H, love. I get my rings from there. I'm obsessed with rings. I like to have a ring on every finger, like I'm in the mafia. Just kidding. They're about the pinky ring, right? They have these like gorgeous sterling silver rings and all of them are beautiful and unique. And the way that they like ship them to you is really nice. They come in like these beautiful like velvet boxes. The shipping is really quick. They have great customer service. They have a chart where you can like size the ring to yourself and they just I own a lot of rings, but their rings are by far the, my favorite I've ever had. They don't just have rings. They have necklaces, too, and earrings. They might have bracelets. I can't remember, but 10 out of 10 recommend Italov, that website. Every time that I wear their rings, I get like a million compliments. So that is my curio of the week. I'm sorry. I didn't get any of that because I've just been picturing you as a mafia don ever since you mentioned the pinky ring thing. <laughs> just, just slightly adjusting your pinky ring and then pummeling some poor dude tied to a chair. Remember when I worked at Saddle Ranch and those guys came in and said that they were from, oh, what was the family? This like mafia family. 
I cannot remember what the name was and they like terrified me they were like trying to get me to kiss their pinky ring and stuff and they were like really aggressive and they were they were like these big guys in suits and I was giving them bottle service and I asked my manager about it because he like put them in a special table and gave them a special price for the bottle and he was like yeah like they're the real deal that I cannot remember what mafia family it was but I was really young at the time and naive I'm sure they weren't I'm sure they were like distant distant relatives I doubt they were actually in the mafia but they scared the heck out of me <laughs> Sadly, that is not the strangest or worst thing that happened to you while working there. Not at all. <laughs> My curio of the week is the stand-up comedy of the late, great Bill Hicks. He has a cult following, to be sure, and I suspect he's still venerated by at least the generation of comics pushing retirement age. But probably by design, he came very close, but never achieved household name status. Although I don't know much about music or musicians, I'm going to call him the Pixies of stand-up comedy. Everyone cites him as an influence, but nobody you know has ever heard of him. Which is a shame, since his comedy is timeless. I know this to be true because I once re-listened his material about President George H.W. Bush during the George W. Bush presidency, and when I realized every joke was still applicable over a decade later to the point you could just swap the names, I felt something I can only compare to the shock of playing his material from a random point and finding the joke sync perfectly with every line from the opening of The Wizard of Oz. He was subversive and avant-garde then, and might even be more so now. Rest in peace, Bill. We love you. After the commercial break, Mickey, Ryan, and Jack strategize until Jack has a revelation. Cut to Jack serving as the fraternity party's bartender and spiking a punch bowl with truth serum. As Eddie isn't allowed into the party, he takes his Cupid statue to what I'm almost certain is the exact same bar from earlier. Guess it's one of those one-bar college towns. Back at the party, slides of erotic art are being projected onto a wall, and I cannot believe I'm saying this given the time and place the show was made and broadcast, but we see... We see You're doing great. Thanks. But we see a fully exposed female breast. Blink and you'll miss it, but it happened. This image is probably a drawing or painting, not a photograph, but I still thought that would be enough to prevent this from airing on television in the late 80s. Live and learn. I wish I could make out even half of what's happening in the background of this party, but the image quality just isn't there. Mickey and Ryan find pork pie, and they all discover the statue is missing. But pork pie, doped up on truth serum, is happy to name Eddie and reveal his address. Even though we've never seen Eddie learn a single thing about the statue, he uses it on a girl in the bar, and off they go. Overhead shots of Mickey and Ryan investigating Eddie's boiler room continue the visual continuity throughout the episode, so bravo to the director and or cinematographer. However, Mickey says she can't believe anyone lives like this, to which Ryan replies that Dracula does. When Mickey says she means so unreal, Ryan asks, are you suggesting Dracula isn't real? It's actually a funny exchange. Oh no, wait, it would be if Dracula lived in a boiler room. That's followed with a nice setup of Ryan warning Mickey about Eddie's homemade burglar alarm tripwire. Wait, wrong again. It's not a setup because it is never paid off. Much like the nude breast earlier, what's going on with Eddie and his victim in the cab of his truck seems far more salacious than I would have thought possible. This show, and this episode in particular, is fascinating in how a sleazy grindhouse moment like this one comes right on the heels of that ludicrous Cupid statue watching them from the cab. While examining Eddie's photographs, reality is again torn asunder when they find one of Lori, not only cuddled up against Eddie, but smiling warmly as they take a picture together. I don't think it's fake, so are they an ex-couple? Nothing indicates that. I guess they were just friendly, but even in the picture, Eddie is staring maniacally into the camera, which seems all wrong given that he appears to have her genuine affection. 
unless there's a gun in her ribs below the frame. I really don't know why they took the time to make this prop photo that only blurs something that was perfectly clear. Then they sprinkle on a soup con more. Sorry, uh, I apologize. Soupçon? Soupçon, okay. Then they sprinkle on a soupçon more ambigu ambiguity. Oh, I'm getting tired. I might have to, might have to just do a few more pages. I'm like having trouble reading. All right. As long as you acknowledge we could have finished today. <laughs> Meaning my, my timing estimate was correct. We're on track to finish, but uh, in the next half an hour. But uh, yeah, if you're not feeling it, we can stop. Yeah. I'm just like, it's my words. I'm going to try to get across. to the next commercial break and see where we're at. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, you're doing great. Thank you. Then they sprinkle on a soup song more ambiguity in the form of Mickey and Ryan discussing Eddie and Lori without ever indicating any surprise they're the same two people they encountered earlier, and in the case of Eddie, twice. I mean, they don't have to, but it seems weird not to acknowledge the insane coincidence, but I suppose that's exactly the thing the writers are desperately hoping we don't notice. Well, divert our attention they do, because you're not going to believe what happens next with Eddie and his victim, even after I tell you. After playing around with some honey, which the show actually established earlier in the boiler room, Eddie headed out into the woods alone. Well, now he returns and chucks a beehive into the truck's cab. Eddie then taunts this poor woman in a particularly sinister performance that goes on for a while, leaving us ample opportunity to marvel at the irony that the statue was far less harmful in the hands of a pork pie hat wearing fraternity bro. Commercial break! If you like the horror genre as much as we do, you can preview the horror comic book Requiem for a Psychopath right now for free at the Interdemon Entertainment website. Imagine a world in which horror film slashers are real, then imagine a troubled team bringing one out of retirement to help him take revenge on his bullies. It was written by me and drawn by friend of the show, Stephen Yu. Again, that's Requiem for a Psychopath on the Interdemon Entertainment website. And if you dig it, Please either review and rate it five stars on Amazon, or don't rate and review it at all. Ratings of less than five stars send the algorithm into murder mode for some reason. Thanks. I hope you enjoy it. How are you feeling? Oh, we'll keep going for it. I, I would love to try to finish. I'm just like starting to get to that point where all my words are all mashed up. It's actually sounding really good. In terms of the read, it's it's going great. You're nailing it. So just 12 more pages, you're like two-thirds of the way there. Okay, let's keep going. While bringing Jack up to speed, Mickey and Ryan actually acknowledge that the owner of one of the evil objects might be more dangerous than the object itself. Is the show already becoming self-aware? We'll see. Only now does someone finally refer to Lori by name, presumably to help Jack search for her, even though he chooses instead to focus on Eddie. Outside the hotel slash bar, Jack gets a lead on Eddie, but that is far less interesting than this show's insistence on putting something in the background that steals attention from what should be the focal point. In this case, the bum that collapsed in the opening shot is sitting beside an empty newspaper dispenser that has been ripped from the concrete and overturned. It's huge and it's yellow and it wouldn't be out of place in Escape from New York, but has no business here. Hey, throwback to Giraffe episode 1. We haven't forgotten about you. Later in the woods, the show's limited lighting budget is actually a feather in its cap, realistically depicting what it would look like if Jack searched a forest with a flashlight, and it creates an ominous atmosphere where danger could come from anywhere. Jack soon stumbles over the bee-sting-riddled corpse. Great stuff. Very dramatic. Not joking. But then Pork Pie shows up because he just happened to be searching the woods alone, looking for Eddie, despite the party going on, and we finally learn his name is Bowser. Bowser. For once, Jack mentions getting the police involved, but we never find out if he made good on that idle threat. When Lori's date decides to head back to the fraternity house for more Chardonnay, yes, 
Chardonnay. She elects to sit by herself near the woods. Eddie, Cupid statue in hand, startles her, and she's actually relieved to see that it's him, completely impugning her character. Mickey and Ryan stumble across them by sheer coincidence, and one would have to believe the statue worked its magic off-screen, because Lori seems to be leaving with Eddie under her own will. But when Mickey and Ryan chase after them, and Eddie runs off alone, Lori just looks around, as if confused, and doesn't run or try to aid Eddie in any way, so we could once again place an over-under bet on what we're supposed to believe at this point. In a shocking display of not just heroics, but actual competence, Ryan the Lion chases down Eddie, strikes him with a metal pole as he's attempting to climb a ladder, retrieves the statue, and flees with it. I'm honestly stunned. I didn't think he had it in him. It's a little odd Ryan isn't actually in frame for the strike, but the action is clear. There's some fun, high-contrast lighting and shadow play adding real menace to the boiler room, and the actor playing Eddie looks so injured and pathetic hanging from the ladder, he almost generates real sympathy for an otherwise thoroughly unlikable character. Good stuff. Ryan reunites with Mickey and Lori, who actually defends Eddie. This basically closes the book on her having been zapped by Cupid off screen, but that strange selfie of them earlier leaves just a tiny bit of room for doubt. I don't think that photo's existence can be rationalized, but if it has a purpose, this is it. Jack shows up to mention the body he found, which finally convinces Lori to maybe kind of think about beginning to have second thoughts on Eddie. Then a security guard shows up and we're treated to what I assume is an RKO radio pictures homage with five characters talking over each other. The security guard takes the statue since the fraternity guys reported it stolen. Dude, just let it go. So our heroes pile into the Winchester Mobile and we finally see them actually drive it. Looks like the show's application for production insurance was finally approved. Nice. Sadly, Eddie saw the interaction, flags down the security guard, and since he routinely poses as a fraternity member, retrieves the statue. Watching a well-meaning law enforcement figure misunderstand a situation to make it worse is a surprisingly poignant reminder this type of tragedy is always possible. Commercial break! Welcome to Crystal Ball, the segment where we gaze into the future and let time make fools of us all. So our crystal ball question of the week is, will we ever get a Jack Marshak episode sans Mickey and Ryan? And if not, will we at least get an episode in which he's the focus and they're relegated to supporting roles? It's funny that you're asking me that because that crossed my mind when I was watching this episode for some reason. He just like has such a flair for the dramatic. Like I know this guy was in his high school theater productions. There's no way he wasn't. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Yeah, like he was out there sword fighting in Peter Pan or flying in through the window. Like, no question in my mind. He's so dramatic. So when I was watching this episode, I was thinking like, he, whenever he's on screen, he really livens it up. I wonder if they're ever going to feature him more or if he's always going to be their sidekick, if you will, because he, he deserves more airtime than he gets. I, and I like, uh, I'm not the biggest fan of Mickey, but I like ryan the lion quite a bit as you know so i'm not i'm not hating on them at all but i just wonder sometimes if he's ever going to like take the lead just for an episode just to mix it up i don't think this show is smart enough to do that so i'm gonna say it doesn't happen that's my guess but i think it would be entertaining if it were me i would do that i would have an episode like that where they're just supporting and it's really about him but i i predict they don't do it Okay, well, you know what? This is interesting because I think we're actually going to diverge for the first time on uh, Crystal Ball because for me, it's a question of how much is this show committed to its formulas? And I think the answer is very. 
because I'm guessing they were very pressed for time. Based on everything I've seen with on the production side, how quickly they shoot, how they don't seem to do second takes, as far as I can tell, they seem to have a bit of a eh, good enough attitude. So I assume that the writer's room was under an equal amount of pressure and they just had to churn out scripts. Could be entirely wrong, but that's my assumption. So I don't know if they would have time to break from their formulas and, and diverge and do something a little bit different. And if it was only like a season, I would say probably not. But there are 72 episodes over three seasons, breaks in between, where they would have had a little chance to take a breather and think a little bit. So I'm going to say at some point, I'm not going to go all in and say that they do a all Jack episode. But I think that at some point they'll do one that at least heavily focuses on him. I would like to see it. So I hope you're right. Because... I think that would be a good call on their part. But I, I do take what you said at the beginning of that into consideration, which is they are so set on those formulas. Speaking of Crystal Ball, so far you've nailed it. We're two for two. We seem to be following that same pattern of protagonists find the object and the person who has it and then get separated from both and then have to encounter them a second time before the episode is over. Ha, I'm a genius. Back from commercial, we find our heroes have brought Lori to temporarily. Blah, 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 blah. Back from commercial, we find our heroes have brought Lori to temporarily live at the store, which we also learn is where Mickey and Ryan both reside. So Mickey showing up out front with her suitcase in episode one finally makes sense. What happened to her boyfriend? Is he just waiting? Maybe that can be a crystal ball question for down the line. Yeah, is he like, hey, what have you been up to? You chasing down haunted objects? Has she told him about the haunted objects? What's going on there? I'm pretty sure Lloyd is cheating so much on the side, he doesn't really care. That's probably true. Further proof the show is becoming self-aware. Lori actually says, Sometime you'll have to explain to me what's going on. Don't try this at home, aspiring screenwriters. You need nerves of steel to attempt a gambit that bold. And if you so much as flinch, you'll burn up on re-entry. So Lori demurely accepts she's been effectively kidnapped by strangers and prepares to get some shut-eye. Our heroes discuss turning Eddie into the police, but Jack warns that Eddie might implicate the statue, causing the police to hold on to it. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if a killer strangles someone on his couch, obviously the couch is logged into evidence along with any other bric-a-brac and tchotchkes present at the time. You nailed it. You nailed tchotchkes. <laughs> and now, we learn the thing we've known all along, that Lori is clearly under the statue's spell. When she calls Eddie to explain, she only went along with the others to keep from arousing suspicion. Our heroes learn of this through the cunning stratagem of overhearing her through the wall, since, in an old, completely silent building, she took zero precautions to keep it private. Again, sacrificing character intelligence for plot expediency like this is the kind of thing they just can't teach you at film school. Either you're born with it, or you ain't. Lori walks right back into the lion's den, but twist! It's Mickey in disguise. In a plan half as bold as it is stupid, Mickey, alone and unarmed, confronts Eddie in a section of the boiler room converted to host a romantic dinner, and for once, the production designer showed some restraint with nary a tacky heart to be seen. We get our first overuse of the bird's eye shot during the standoff, but the same angle is used effectively in the chase scene a moment later, so I'll pin that mistake on the editor, unless they just fail to get proper coverage of the dialogue. Why she's alone makes absolutely no sense, and neither does Eddie's insistence on carrying the statue with him at all times, including when trying to chase someone down. I get that it's his precious, but they really messed up making it so big. Ryan the Lion finally bursts in on the catwalk above Mickey, and she just stops running and stands there waiting for him to climb down, despite the madman at her heels. 
Fortunately, two wrongs make a right, and instead of catching up and bludgeoning her with the statue, Eddie sets it on a barrel, positions it, and zaps Mickey. At this moment, my stomach dropped, because up until now, the victim of the statue has always been looking at the creeper using it. This time, Mickey is looking at Ryan, so it seemed like he's who she should fall for. And now I'm at a crossroads, because is it better for her to fall for Eddie? That's a question I hoped I would never have to ask. Turns out Mickey is on Team Eddie, so the show maintains the tradition of clarifying the rules for the haunted objects during the denouement. Denouement? You can pronounce it denouement. I believe the French is denouement. Denouement, okay. So the show maintains the tradition of clarifying the rules for the haunted objects during the denouement. I guess that's fine, since it's also continuing the tradition of our heroes confronting the haunted objects and villain, being separated from them, and then confronting them again. Man, between Jack and Uncle Lewis, the homoerotic monastery, and now this unlikely pairing of Mickey and Eddie, the show is 95% shipping opportunity by weight. I can't possibly be correctly interpreting what my eyes are showing me next, so I can't really comment on it. All I can do is try to describe it without going mad. With the statue in one hand and an axe in the other, Eddie challenges Ryan to come take the Cupid, then intentionally severs a steam pipe with the axe, scalding only himself, as Mickey dove out of the way before she could have possibly known what was happening. Moving on. The following vertical chase scene is really well blocked, lit, and edited, and would actually be exciting if Ryan wasn't chasing what should be a blind man carrying a three-foot-tall haunted Cupid statue. Kind of ruins the mood. The quality further sags when we have to briefly see our actors and not two stuntmen having a ball on. Oh, my bad. <laughs> having a ball on. The quality further sags when we have to briefly see our actors and not two stuntmen having a ball in what's essentially an industrial jungle gym, but they totally make up for that with another great stunt fall, right through that romantic table, no less. Nice. I think you just coined a new Britishism. We should run that by British people and see if they want to make that a new thing. Are you having a ball on? Are you having a ball on? Are you taking the piss, mate? Are you having a ball on? You having a ball on? That's funny. With Eddie dead, Mickey is apparently released from his spell. Ryan delivers some clunky lines that aren't even trying to be one-liners, probably for the best. How dare you? Sorry, my apologies. I didn't realize when I wrote this what a what a fangirl you were for Ryan the Lion. <laughs> Then our heroes stroll off with another body in their wake, and us wondering why Jack didn't show up and why nobody came armed. One gun, hell, one pointy stick might have actually saved a life. Just as I'm convinced last episode forced members of the grip slash electric department to portray monks, I'm equally convinced the lone extra pulling a clothing rack full of wardrobe bags past the foreground of our establishing shot of Curious Goods is someone from the wardrobe department who drew the short straw, for he is truly the overturned newspaper dispenser of this moment. The statue is put in the vault, and Jack gives an ominous warning that if the objects ever fall into the wrong hands again, they'll have to find them all over. Not sure if that's a hint of things to come, but since they don't seem to lock the vault, it feels very possible. It was the 80s when every Nintendo game ended with, and now your quest continues, and you had to replay essentially the same game all over, but with minor variations or a little more difficult. <laughs> this, is, this is just like that. <laughs> The most interesting part of this whole scene is the camera booming up once the doors are closed to reveal the vault has a large demonic face carved into it. For the record, I'm always eager to learn more about the vault as it's my favorite character of the show. Now that they're lighting the st oh, yeah. So close, so close. <laughs> now that they're lighting the store to look like beams of sunlight are cutting through a bit of standing haze, the place has an ethereal quality that's more interesting and unsettling than the shadowy, scary vibe they started with. Ryan the Lion asks out Lori, is shot down, and watches her leave with an Adonis, so he jokes about using a tiny bit of magic from the statue's arrow on her. Just the tip, if you will. Tch. He's called out by Mickey, then asks Mickey, his cousin, out on a date. 
God damn it, man. You were seconds away from getting through this episode without being a total creeper yourself. Wow, I'm actually, that actually shocks me. I'm surprised they went that far with it. Like, the creepy jokes were one thing, but he actually asking her on a date is pretty shocking. Yeah, right after implying using the statue to uh, win over a woman who's not interested. Yeah, they're, they're now they're, like, pushing it to a, a place that's pretty uncomfortable. Yep, that's three episodes. Maybe that should be our crystal ball question. And will that continue? Yeah. The almost flirtatious way Mickey shoots him down combined with the saxophone music feels like a dire warning of things to come. Then Jack flashes Ryan a swift wag of the finger that seems to silently scream, Dude! Cousins! And we end on a freeze frame of Ryan the Lion caught halfway between facial expressions that's so awkward my heart breaks for John D. LeMay, the actor who played him. Yeah, I'm really curious to see what you think of that. Uh, because as you know, I... I haven't cited John D. LeMay as my favorite actor so far, but I actually felt bad for their choice of ending shot. It's it's a bad choice and uh, is unfair to the actor. Yeah, it is. It's really, really. I'm I am shocked that they took it that far. Oh, the cousin thing, yeah, but also just the the final freeze frame is weird. Yeah. What do you think, having only read my script? I mean, it sounds to me like the most interesting episode so far, but maybe that's because I haven't actually seen it. It sounds like there was some hilarious stuff that happened that I'm most intrigued by that scene where the guys randomly, the fraternity brothers randomly break in. That's just so bizarre. I don't know how they didn't possibly think, like, we should make this make more sense. It doesn't make any sense. It's just so strange. But I feel like there's been something like that in every episode so far. I know you've been pre-biased, but I'm really curious to get your thoughts on it. And like I said, I can tell you other people who did not read the script first came to the same conclusion I did. So I'm not completely alone. No, I believe you. I mean, I've seen enough of this show to understand they do things that's like, what? What? Exactly. It's like it's like they want something to happen, but they get tired of trying to make it make sense. They're like, eh, we'll just do it. Yeah, I don't think they had time for second and third drafts of these scripts. Yeah, but it sounds like it's super, super entertaining, like a really fun episode. I, I just can't get over the shock of the ending that they actually had him ask his cousin on a date. I'm really surprised they went there. I always thought they were going to make it like a kind of weird undertone, but like never really address it. But I'm, I'm really surprised they did that. That's a really bizarre choice. I know. And in the home stretch, they were so close. And then yeah. he actually ups the ante by yeah. straight up asking her out. I think this one was a really fun idea for an episode, though, the whole Cupid statue thing. They're doing a good job of coming up with fun ideas for the different haunted objects like the haunted doll was good the pen that you know creates the murders was interesting and now this this love statue i i think they're all really i haven't heard of an idea yet where i'm like oh that's lame like this one sounds like it's fun to watch too so overall i think that their creativity is definitely their main asset all right hill street i have to know you just finished watching the episode what did you think? I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was really silly in all the ways I like. I mean, it starts off right off the bat, just like, what is happening? Like, this woman's in a club or a bar, I guess, and this guy is just giving her the strangest look across the room. A bar, a club, a love hotel. A love hotel, if you will. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, I mean, were you... <laughs> Were you as lost as in terms of like what this place was supposed to be? Yes. Feels like a very blue collar, rednecky kind of bar downstairs. But fraternity guys hang out here. So it's also a college bar. But upstairs, there's a love motel. 
Yeah, yeah, you know, I didn't even piece all that together until you said that right now, but it is bizarre. Like, why were there fraternity boys there? And why was there a hotel upstairs? Yeah, it was so strange. Well, like I mentioned in the script, I was so lost in terms of just the geography of where any of these events were happening because it did not seem possible they could all be going down under one roof. Yeah. And, like, the second the guy walks up and asks her to dance, she's immediately... Not just like, no, thank you. Like, she hates him. She's repulsed by him. You would think they had some kind of history for the amount of hatred she's giving him. He didn't, like, make the V with his fingers and stick his tongue out at you. Like, I don't know why she's so repulsed by him. He just walked up and asked her to dance. <laughs> but what was your gut reaction when he, when he hauls that statue in the sack onto the top of the bar? It was just so bizarre. It was, I, I was, it was just like, I don't know how we're supposed to, I mean. Forget about the sack. What, the, the, what did you think about the design of the Cupid statue? I actually like it. I think it's cool. I'm so impressed with the amount of stop motion they did for this. But at the same time, just the production design of the thing and the fact that it's like, what do you think? Two and a half, three feet tall. Yeah, it's like, It becomes kind of reality breaking. Whoever wants to use this thing has to lug this ridiculously large statue around with them everywhere they go. I know. I'm like, he brought this into the bar with him. Like, nobody questioned that. He's had that with him. Yeah, it's, it is a little strange. They probably should have made it like a figurine. Yeah, exactly. Something smaller, something you could pocket or keep in maybe if you had a satchel or something. Mm -hmm. You know, someone from the props department walked up with this thing and they're like, okay, yeah, here's the statue. And they're like, uh, what is he supposed to do with this in a bar? Like, it's ridiculous that he walked in just carrying this thing. And they're like, uh, throw a burlap sack over it, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. You had mentioned, too, that when we read the script, that the fraternity bros were the part of the show you were most interested in seeing. Having met them, yeah, what did you think of them and their whole introduction? And had I not told you, would you have had any sense they were fraternity bros when they busted down that door in the beginning? No, it doesn't make any sense. That, that whole them busting the door down makes zero sense when you told me about it and still zero sense seeing it. Because she's not, like, screaming. If she was screaming at the top of her lungs while being attacked, then maybe you could be like, okay, I could see people trying to save her. But she's, like, quietly choking. She's quietly choking and then a bunch of fraternity brothers in a very loud hotel by the way they have i'm pretty sure correct me if i'm wrong i'm pretty sure they have like background music going on in this hotel again it's right over that bar there's an entire music act going on just downstairs yeah she's being quietly choked and the boys somehow magically hear this and a bunch of them break down the door which honestly even if she was screaming at the top of her lungs there's a decent chance nobody would break down the door Sometimes you hear screaming in weird places and you're like, oh, that's weird. Hope everyone's okay. I heard screaming from the love motel upstairs. Oh yeah, better do something. Yeah, it's like, you never know why people are screaming. Sometimes you hear something and you know it's not right. Sometimes you know. Like I remember, little side story. I remember being in my apartment in North Hollywood trying to sleep at like four in the morning and hearing someone like scream, blood curdling screaming for their life. And it was like a drug addict who was on some kind of really bad trip. Those sounds... You, you just like could feel in your bones wasn't right. But like when someone's like screaming in a hotel room and you're in, you, yeah, exactly. I love like you're probably going to ignore that. But let's just say that you didn't. Okay, screaming you would hear. But these little choke sounds, zero, zero percent chance they were going to hear this. Even if they were like right outside the door with their ear pressed to the door. I don't know if you could hear it. But yeah, made no sense. And like really all these four guys are going to be like, I think I might hear something behind this door. Let's break it down. It's not like they like spent a few minutes pounding on it saying, hey, what's going on in there? Hey, they just decided, eh, why the fuck not? We'll just break it down. It was just really strange. It made no sense. 
Um, but no, I had no idea those were fraternity brothers. They didn't look like them, really. And they looked way older. <laughs> and it just seems so baffling to me. They're fraternity guys. All you have to do is slap on letter sweaters. Exactly. Three Greek letters on each of their sweatshirts, and you're done. I know. Yeah. Really, really strange and then that scene that follows to me is like the classic example of when like you don't have proper stunt people and you probably just tell the actors like what they're going to do and everyone's like okay yeah i think we got it and you're like all right but you know safety first right oh yeah you know absolutely and then when the cameras start rolling and the director calls action that uh, adrenaline kicks in and everything gets ramped up like times 10 and all of a sudden they kick down the door jump on the guy <laughs> and did you notice he's still holding her neck as all three of them go sliding off the bed together. <laughs> he was dedicated to his craft. It's realistic, I guess. Yeah. Speaking of the hotel room, what, what did you think about that hotel manager? Did he stand out to you? Mm, not really. Should he have? Uh, I mean, he did to me because it seems like they did not tell him what kind of show he was on. That's really funny. And he has the realization that like, oh yeah, there was this strange statue in the room. He gets a look in his eye like a Vietnam vet remembering Da Nang. <laughs> I don't know why he played it so intense, but man, was he just swinging for the fences with that performance. And it seemed bizarre. Again, he seemed like a homicide detective. We were like, oh yeah, this guy has seen his last case. He's going home tonight and hanging himself in his closet with a belt. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I didn't notice that, but now that you say it, I could totally see that. I thought he was good. But he just played it strangely intense for like what his role on the show actually was. That's really funny. You know, I, I felt like, I think her name's Lori, the one that Eddie's obsessed with. Lori played like her first scene with Eddie so depressed. Like like she was like falling asleep depressed. Like he was like try talking to her, trying to get her to whatever, walk with him or hang out with him or something. And she was like, no, Eddie, just go away. Eddie, please. And I was like, this is a really weird performance. She was like, don't make me have to call someone, Eddie. And I was like, why? This is really a strange take on this. You think she'd be like, Eddie, leave me alone. Don't make me have to call someone. Why are you doing? But instead, she played it like, oh, I'm so sleepy and depressed. I can't deal with you. And I was like, this is a really strange performance. Her relationship to him is kind of all over the place. And I think some of it's the performance, but some of it's the way it's written. Whereas the you know, if I were the actress, I'd be like, okay, but what exactly is my relationship to him? Because there are photos where we seem to be, you know, sitting together side by side. They don't have their arms around each other, but they're clearly like shoulder to shoulder, cheek to cheek. Oh, look at us. Aren't we having fun? But then she also seems creeped out by him. Like he's a little bit stalkerish, but she kind of holds her own and is, you know, to give her the benefit of the doubt. There were times when I was thinking, well, maybe she's playing it like I am afraid of him but I'm gonna play it casual because if I show that I'm afraid, like that'll make it even worse. So I was like, okay, cool. Maybe that's what's going on. But then other times it seemed like she should legitimately be full on afraid, but she actually seems kind of legitimately kind to him. And yeah, like I thought her character was just all over the map in terms of understanding what is her actual relationship to Eddie. Right. No, I wondered the same thing. What is her actual relationship with him it, it almost reminded me a little bit of 16 candles with molly ringwald and like her little blonde guy friend who's like always kind of bugging her but like they're still friends but he's like got a major thing for her i was trying to figure out with these two i was like are they friends and he always wants more how well does she know him is he like what is what is what is the vibe here yeah because when we first meet eddie he just comes across more as a little bit awkward 
He doesn't seem like a nerd, which again is why I pointed out that pocket protector and what a mistake that was, but he just comes across as a little bit socially awkward. So she's not afraid of him and she can hold her own and can deflect and isn't actually worried. So that's actually kind of cool. But then when it becomes apparent that like, no, this dude has like serious issues and is playing it super intense even before he gets the statue, really her reaction to him should be wildly different. Yeah. It does seem like she should be more alarmed by him. But then we see that photo where they kind of seem friendly. And I was like, well, did they actually date at one point or were they at least like more friendly? Because that would kind of maybe explain like maybe it was a frog boiling in hot water situation where over time he just gradually became a little weirder and a little weirder. So now she kind of feels like she does have a connection to him. I just don't know. There's there's so much headcanon you can write, which is why the show is so fascinating. Yeah, they could have afforded to give us a little more of a background on them, but you're right. I guess it's up to us. Dennis Forrest, as Eddie, is my favorite actor of the episode. Kind of like the hotel manager, Dennis Forrest just swinging for the fences, plays it super intense, and it's super creepy and super interesting and really makes the episode. But it does seem like just such a bizarre choice because between his performance and again, the really excellent production design of the boiler room where he lives and the cutout photographs and everything about him is done so well if this was an episode about a legit serial killer. But like young Mistress Mary in the first episode, it's like, is that even a good idea though, based on the tone of the rest of the show? Like it always seems so tonally inconsistent. I completely agree. It's truly uh, a tale of two series. It was a tale of two series. Do you agree with my assessment that there's a weird parallel to Sarah Polly as young Mistress Mary? Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. I guess our new crystal ball question will be, will I ever find one of our three main actors to be my favorite, or am I always going to select a supporting actor? Oh, I think you're going to always pick a supporting actor, because if it hasn't happened yet... (laughs) This is true. I do love my formulas. How about you? Who was your favorite actor this episode? Probably Eddie as well. Same as you. I thought he did a really nice job. I I totally bought him in that part. Yeah, I mean, super intense, right? Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, what did you think of the beehive moment? Uh, a strange. It was. I, it reminded me so much of one of the first episodes of Smallville, where like the character controls bees. This show reminds me a lot of like Smallville and Supernatural. It feels like a Smallville Supernatural combo a little bit. Well, chocolate in your peanut butter, peanut butter in your chocolate. <laughs> But uh, I I enjoyed the fact that he closed her in the car, he watched the bees attack her, and then he's smiling and mouthing, I love you. (laughs) I was like, this is fun and twisted. Yeah, I mean, that was super dark. Yeah. I mean, the the amount of time they let it play, just how terrorized she was, the, I don't know if it was ad-libbing that he was doing, but yeah, the little sort of goofy stuff he started doing as the scene went on. Yeah. Did not come across, or at least it did not read to me as funny. It read to me as legitimately creepy, the way he's just kind of, playing like it's a children's game while she's being stung to death by bees, which somehow, despite the silliness of that setup, the actual creepiness of the execution uh, kind of overrode that and made it surprisingly intense. Yeah, no, it definitely worked. Tonally all over the map, but again, makes the show fascinating because you never know what's around any corner. Right. I have to say, though, I'm, I'm sorry, but I think there was some real character assassination with respect to our leads with the way... <laughs> I mean, what did you think about them just sending in Mickey alone? When she doesn't have her hair, she's hard for me to recognize. Unless she's wearing a monk's robe and then instantly recognizable as female. Well, yeah, that was ridiculous. You could freaking see her hair. I was a little surprised. It caught me off guard. 
I was a little surprised by that, but then again, I don't know, sometimes they do stuff to make you that I'm like, really? This little tiny woman, you're gonna send, you're gonna do that to her? I was like, okay, that's a bold choice, and she looked terrified the whole time. Yeah, and it's like, the characters already have seen the location. They know where he's at. In fact, they got to explore his place when he wasn't present. Right down to that tripwire, which still blows my mind, where Ryan points out, you know, oh, look out for that tripwire. But we never get a payoff on that. We don't know if that was connected to a soup can full of dry beans or C4. Yeah. It could have been literally anything. We don't know because it was never paid off, which seems super bizarre. But then they encounter him, including Ryan the Lion whacking Eddie with a shovel. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you felt bad for Eddie at that moment, but strangely, I kind of did. He just looks so pathetic hanging <laughs> from that ladder, getting whacked like a pinata with a shovel by Ryan the Lion. No, I, I actually felt kind of bad for him, too. <laughs> That's a credit to the actor. He did a good job. Our protagonists always seem to be caught flat-footed. They show up at this place with seemingly no plan whatsoever other than Mickey's going to go in 100% alone in costume and be 100% at this dude's mercy where it's like, you've got Jack for backup. You've got Ryan the Lion. You know the location. Like, go in and be ready to pounce. But they're just nowhere to be seen. Yeah. The only other thing that I was going to mention is just how hilarious the scene is where they go to the fraternity. They want to look for the statue. And they're like, yeah, you know, we've pretended to be police before or whatever. And they show up and the fraternity brother, they're like, hey, we need to search for this statue. They stole it from a crime scene. And the fraternity brother's like, do you have a warrant or ID? And Ryan's like, no but we're just going to be taking a look around. I'm like, what is this plan? What is this plan? It, it, was, it was just so, so funny to me. I know we talked about it in the script, but like, you guys didn't think at all, like, this show is just so often just like a really bad version of Supernatural. Like, at least on Supernatural, Sam and Dean like know to like suit up and have fake IDs whenever they need to like check a scene for something. But these two just like show up in regular clothes. They're like, well, we're going to take a look around. The guy's like, who are you? <laughs> what are you doing? And Ryan said, okay, fine. We're not police, but we still need to look around your house. And the guy's like, um, I can't just let two strangers into my house to like look around and look through all of our stuff. I'm like, my, no one's going to be happy about that. They were like, oh, shoot. There goes our brilliant plan. I was like, there was no plan. There was no plan. I just thought that part was, like, the funniest part of the episode to me. It was just so, like, it just didn't make any sense from a writing standpoint or from a character standpoint. Like, who in their right mind, like, what? when would you ever just say, let's just drive to this place and just tell these people we're going to search their stuff for what we need and they'll be fine with it? Yes, and regarding your supernatural comments, I have actually had that exact same thought where I'm like, you know, Sam and Dean would have had suits. They would have had FBI badges. They would have had credentials they would have had maybe something that looked like a warrant like there's just a baseline level of competence you have to have and with them we're gonna have a female character show up at this monastery passing herself off as male and then as soon as someone addresses her they're both like uh think quick think quick and ryan the lion's like oh oh uh, he's taking a vow of silence yeah and it's like they're just coming up with this stuff on the spot like think man did you put even an ounce of thought into this yeah Ryan the Lion is absolutely the Han Solo of this show where <laughs> he thinks he's more charismatic than he actually is. Yeah. And he's just going to show up with no plan and just charm his way through and it never works. It seemed really odd to me. The whole character of whom I refer to as Pork Pie, 
but he's the fraternity brother who took the statue from the hotel and then and then was just stuck. He is not the one that actually uses it. And it just seems so weird to me that they didn't simply eliminate that character. What I mean is they didn't combine that character with Eddie and basically eliminate Eddie. Like, if he had been Eddie? Well, I had a thought on that, and I was I might be giving the show too much credit here, but I felt like maybe they did that to illustrate to us that the statue only works on people with psychopathic tendencies. Because the first guy who has it is clearly a psycho, and the statue, like, allows him, like, ele- in my opinion, elevates that to do his killing. The second guy who takes it is a normal guy, and it has no effect on him. But then when the creepy stalker guy gets it in his hands, Eddie, it, like, escalates. Yeah, it completely supports our ongoing belief, our crystal ball prediction that only psychopaths end up with these objects. Here we have a guy who, you know, pork pie, who gets his hands on it and doesn't use it for evil. I mean, he's kind of trying, kind of a gray area quote Dennis Reynolds, it's a little dubious because of the implication. But yeah, you know, he gets his hands on it. He kind of maybe thinks it's going to help somehow, but doesn't actually do anything with it. And then sure enough, oh, it falls into the hands of someone who's basically a serial killer, which means in this episode, I don't know if you caught this, but (laughs) we've doubled down on the conceit that these objects are only going to end up in the hands of killers. Because in this episode, between the guy in the hotel from the opening the person that they refer to that had it before that, and then Eddie, this one object in one episode ended up in the hands of three psychopaths. I'm picturing an Olympic track with three serial killers just handing off this Cupid statue as a baton. Yeah, exactly. Like it's just a three serial killer relay race. Exactly. It's like, hey, get this in your hands. You don't have to worry about that pesky conscience. Yeah, yeah. No, that is partly why I love this show. It is absolutely insane. Yeah. Whose line is it anyway? The (laughs) rules are made up and the points don't matter. Exactly. That's funny. (laughs) I think that like, not only does it, in my opinion, escalate their already pretty psychopathic tendencies, but I also think it calls to them. Like they, they, they sense it, they feel it, it calls to them. Like they just see it on a shelf and they have to have it. The fraternity boy who stole it, I think he was like, oh, cool statue it's supposed to help you with love or whatever and he steals it and just is like whatever because he's not psychopathic it doesn't make him want to kill you know same thing in the first episode with mary and vita i think vita was like literally calling to her because mary was already insane that's my theory i think that's what the show is illustrating that these these objects are actually like emanating psychic powers that are radiating out and attracting psychopaths yeah attracting the right people the people who will do what the objects want them to do I don't think it's like it takes completely innocent people and makes them do bad things. I think it takes bad people and maybe escalates their behavior, you know? Kind of like, in my opinion, Jack in The Shining. I don't think Jack in The Shining was like a normal, innocent, sweet guy who turned crazy. I think he was already crazy when he got to the Overlook (laughs) because he was acting weird from the beginning. I think it just escalated his mental state. He was already drinking and beating his son up. And was, I think, a weirdo from the beginning of that. Either that, or I have an issue with Jack Nicholson's performance in that. But I digress. Oh, yeah, definitely in the Kubrick version. Yeah. Well, you know what? Yes, and. That is definitely some headcanon you've just introduced. But you know what, Hill Street? I am totally on board. (laughs) If you have some literature, I wish to subscribe to your teachings. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, I'm just like, I swear, last thing I'll say about it. But it's supposed to be like, oh, this like really sweet 
dad shows up to this hotel or whatever and then he like slowly becomes more crazy but he the way that jack nicholson portrays that character from the beginning of that movie he seems crazy from the second he gets there there's not that big of an arc he just gets a little weirder <laughs> but <laughs> whatever anyway ah uh, yes we've we've split ren into his evil side and his even eviler side yeah he's like already so weird and that's how it kind of I, how i feel about this these people are already crazy and weird and this thing just allows them to it takes away you know it brings them back to their id takes away those inhibitions it says you want to kill do it it's cool that's what I think these objects are doing. When frickin' Mickey and Ryan get it in their hands, they're not like must kill. Or when this pork pie, as you call him, got it in his hands, it had no effect on him. So I think we can close the books. I think that's that's the answer. And if the show was not trying to do that, that's insane. Because that is literally what they're spelling out in every episode. I don't know about you, but to me the production design stood out because it just epitomizes that this show is... A tale of two series. <laughs> it's always the best of production designs and the worst of production designs. Yes. On the one hand, you've got like just the, I mean, I know it's supposed to be a cheap love motel, but it just looks so cheap. It's like, oh, uh, love motel, uh, heart over the bed, I guess. And uh, and like pink sheets. Right. And like the, I mean, yeah, fraternity parties aren't going to break the bank on like decorations, but it just seems so, oh, run to the nearest party store and get like tinsel and streamers. And that's that's what a fraternity does, right? For some reason, the show wants us to believe every house has a symbol and it's literally like a heart with an arrow going through it. It looks like it was like fired off by a production assistant in like 30 minutes on whatever software <laughs> yeah. was available at the time and just looks... Absolutely terrible. But on the flip side of all this, you've got Eddie's place in that boiler room, which for for if it was a show about, you know, a serial killer is actually amazing. Yeah. I don't know what you thought, but like I thought like the production design on like his either between the cot and like the cutout pictures of girls and the fact that he's living in a boiler room, etc. And like that, I mean, that vertical chase scene where they're like moving up through the, really using the height of the boiler room to its full advantage. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought that was all pretty incredible. Yeah. I think that it, it, they are inconsistent with like how quality some of their like looks and sets are because there are some things that I'm like, this is really good. Like really good practical stuff, like a practical set, you know, um, mm -hmm. like it's not like they're like green screening things or whatever like we do now. Like, this is like, they really have this set there and it looks good. And then there's some things where I'm like, I'm not even sure what I'm looking at. Like, I'm, I'm not yeah. even sure what this is, you know? So they are really inconsistent with it. But also that doesn't surprise me because if there's one thing I'd call the show, it's inconsistent. Did any of the other production designs stand out to you? Yeah, it was all like kind of hard to see. Everything was very hazy and dark, which is what this show likes to do when something's supposed to be like eerie, I guess. Yeah, on the flip side of that issue, I was going to ask... Did you actually think that the look of Curious Goods, the antique store, seemed about the same as previous episodes in terms of like what's in the store and how it's arranged and set up and everything, but the lighting seemed different to me in a way that seemed more like the way Clive Barker would do it, like almost more ethereal? Mm-hmm. I noticed that too. Everything looked like weirder in this episode to me, almost hazier. I mean, I think it's getting back a little bit to what we talked about, about maybe different directors being allowed to bring a little bit of their own vision to the production. Uh, because you'd ask me if uh, the same person directed the first three episodes, and I can tell you definitively that I did look into it. And no, they were each directed by a different person. And in fact, you know, little tangent here, got a little story for you that I think you're going to like. 
this episode, episode three, was directed by a man by the name of, I'm going to go with Adam Egoyan. He's gone on to do some pretty impressive work. Uh, in 2009, he did a movie called Chloe with Liam Neeson, Julianne Moore, and Amanda Seyfried. We going with Seyfried these days? I, I never know. Seyfried? 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 I don't know. I just mimic whatever the person I'm talking to says because I don't freaking know. Okay, well, don't worry. You don't have to repeat this, but I'm just going to record it like three ways and then I'll try to look to do it and pick one later. Amanda Seyfried? Amanda Seyfried? <laughs> you said it the same way twice. <laughs> it's weird. You tried to, you know, you tried to do it wrong, and now all I can do is the same way. <laughs> that was great. Please put that in. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, in 2014, he did a film called The Captive with Ryan Reynolds and Rosario Dawson. But the film that I actually know him from, or the film of his that I know, was way back in 1997. He did a movie called The Sweet Hereafter. And the reason I heard about it was that it was nominated for two Academy Awards for Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay, much like our young Mistress Mary, Sarah Polly, who won an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay, right? Uh-huh. This ties him to her in that respect. But even more so, guess who stars in the suite hereafter? Who? Sarah Polly. Oh my God, I knew you were going to say it. <laughs> He did not direct episode one. He directed this episode, which Sarah Polly was definitely not a part of. So I don't know if this show brought them together in some capacity, if they were in the production offices at the same time or around the lot or the studio or what have you. But at some point he ran across Sarah Polly and uh, put her in the suite hereafter and it almost won him two Oscars. Wow. I can tell you the, the episode four is all about a singer and it is very much a musical episode. Ooh, and color me intrigued. I mean, it's not a musical as in they're not singing and dancing, but it's all about a rock star and a haunted teacup, and they try to turn a children's nursery rhyme into a hit song. Uh-huh. And it is incredible. I think you I think you will have thoughts. That sounds awesome. I'm I'm very intrigued. All right. Until next week. Until next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. We know you have a lot of choices when choosing a Friday the 13th the Series podcast, and we sincerely thank you for choosing ours. Huh, still no Jason. This is, uh, getting a little weird, right? Special thanks to Joshua Romeo for original music, and to Stephen Yu for original art. If you want to support our show, you can leave a review and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you want an occasional update on our projects, you can sign up for our newsletter at the Inner Demon Entertainment website. And if you want to follow us on social media, honestly, we don't like social media. We're not good at social media, but links can be found on our website. If you've ever wondered what would have happened if Pat Benatar had attempted to turn I'm a Little Teapot into an 80s pop rock power ballad, be here next episode. Take care until then. Good night, everybody.